Hey, so I'm glad you're here. If you're, if you're visiting, uh, you picked a good Sunday to visit because obviously today's a number of first things that we're doing for the kind of the fall, and that is one of them is tri-tip after, after the service to find out how you can get connected in different places, which, by the way, um, uh, you don't have to sign up to eat tri-tip, but you should sign up to serve in some capacity. So some people think, oh, you only get tri-tip if you serve. No, sorry. We're under grace. Okay, you don't have to earn your tri-tip, Okay. <laughs> But anyway, well, I'll give you more instructions at the, at the end of the service regarding that. The second thing, obviously, this is a great opportunity for your first time, is that we are launching into a brand new series today. And the series is called Inoculated. And I will, I will explain what that is all about, because it's like, what in the world? A, a teaching series from the Bible about being inoculated. What is that about? So before I get into the specifics of that, I want us to understand that there, there is a, there's a dimension of what it means to follow Jesus that that some of us get a glimpse of and others maybe never quite get there and others still experience at a depth that many of us long to experience. And that is this, that the, this thing called the gospel, which we would explain is all of human history is the gospel. It's, it's God's plan through Jesus' death and resurrection, his life, death, and resurrection to reconnect everything and everyone back to him. That is, that is all of human nature wrapped up in, in like a statement. And so all of human history is unfolded for God to intersect human beings so that they become a part of this gospel story so that their lives actually become changed and transformed to be like they were originally created. And so what, what happens is if we never get to the point where we fully embrace Jesus, then we never fully become who we were created to be. Because everything in our world is marked by sin and failure and brokenness. And the only answer to that is Jesus' death and resurrection. And if we never get to that, that means that we live our lives cloaked in kind of this covering of sin and brokenness. And because of that, we can never fully be what we're supposed to be and who we're supposed to be. And so Jesus makes it possible through this story of the gospel that now in, intersects and impacts our lives to actually kind of pull away the layers of sin and brokenness and experience healing and forgiveness and wholeness to actually live the life that we're supposed to live. Now, that means that there, there's a difficulty in the challenges where I am now to where I know God wants me to be. And by the way, the life that God gives us is not about us being happy. It's about experiencing meaning and fulfillment. And those are distinctly different things than happiness. So if there's, there's us where we are now and where we want to be, then how do we get there? Well, one of the biggest hurdles and challenges we have with the gospel is whether we know it or not, is that we actually become inoculated to it. Now, let me explain. So inoculation, you, most of you know what inoculation is. So you ever gone to the doctor, especially when you were a child, and you got immunizations, remember that? And a lot of them, what they do is they actually inject in you a small amount of a virus or a disease to cause your body to react against it and build up immunity. They don't give enough of the disease to kill you, just enough to make you a little sick. Anybody got that? That's called an inoculation. And so what happens is good, like with things like chicken pox and, you know, all kind of stuff. You build up this immunity, and so you don't react to that disease when it comes near you. But the downside is that whether we know it or not, so many times in our life, we do the same thing with the gospel. That means that we, we, we get a taste of the gospel. We get a little bit of understanding of what God wants to do in our life, but it never really gets to our souls. And so what happens is we get enough, enough of the gospel to rearrange our lives a little bit, but not enough to kill us. See, the gospel is designed to actually kill us. You think, why did I come to church to know that I have to die today? Because in order for us to be who God calls us to be, there has to be a death first before there's life. When you read the Bible, you realize that it's the reverse of what human nature is. Human nature says life becomes, comes before death. No, the gospel says death comes before life. And Jesus says that in order for us to truly be alive, 
we actually have to have a lethal dose of something that renews us and changes us and causes us to be resurrected. Listen to what Jesus said in his own words. Luke chapter 9, verse 24, Jesus says, For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. It's the reverse of what we think. Jesus, or Paul says this in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. He says, I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who lived, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So there's this reverse that goes on that actually what the gospel is designed to do, God's work in us, Jesus' death and resurrection is actually supposed to give a lethal dose to kill off our sin and brokenness so we can be emerged as who God's created us to be. So that means, how do we navigate this? And why would this be such a big deal? Because we might think, hey, I understand that Jesus died on the cross, and maybe you've attended church for years, and maybe you read the Bible, and you're like, I got that, I got that. But the challenge is, it's not just the information, the knowledge of what Jesus did, it's, it's that intake that causes the transformation in our lives that changes everything. And the reason this is a big deal be is because we can be lulled into believing that we can do things that we would classify as Christian. We can live a certain way and believe that, hey, we have it all, except there's one missing ingredient. We haven't died to ourselves. We haven't fully surrendered our lives to Jesus. We've still added him on as an addition to the life that we want to live and said, God, come do what I need you to do. Come fix my problems and make my life better, but I'm not going to fully surrender myself to you. What's the danger in that? Why is this such a big deal? Well, listen to the very words of Jesus. You know, there's certain passages in the Bible that when you're reading, you're like, why did that have to be in there? Why did Jesus have to say that? But listen to what he says to a group of people who were convinced, we're good. We got enough of the gospel. He says in Matthew chapter 7, verse 21 to 23, he says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, will, some will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, and do mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Isn't that an encouraging verse this morning? <laughs> what is Jesus saying? He's saying it's possible for us to deceive ourselves into thinking, we got it, we understand it. I'm doing the stuff that gets me into heaven, only to realize that we've never really surrendered our lives to Jesus to know him and let him be the one that's in charge. Let him be the one that we follow. So, so put, it, put it this way, Tim Keller, who's one of my favorite authors, he, he says it this way, when it comes to the gospel, he said the gospel is like a coin. It's like you go to a vending machine, you put a coin in, okay? Now, normally you can now, you can put in a credit card or dollar bills, right? Coins, old school, right? But you put a coin in. The coin's in the machine, but the coin is completely ineffective unless it drops. You ever put a coin in and it gets stuck? And it's in the machine. It's no longer in your hand. You don't see it anymore, but it hasn't dropped. And if it, if it stays in that state, it will never drop. What will happen? You will never get out of that machine what you expected when you put the money into it. And until the coin drops, it's worthless. It doesn't work. And Tim Keller talks about how we accept the gospel and it gets in, but it never drops. It never penetrates our soul. It never gets to the core of who we are so that it actually can start to impact all of who we are, the way we think, the way we act, our character. Everything is influenced by the gospel, by Jesus. And so this series is really about how do we get to a place where we allow the gospel to drop into our souls, where we're not living on the surface any longer, but we're actually fully experiencing 
Now, before we get into the passage, we'll be in Mac, actually in Matthew chapter 13. We're going to look at verses 1 through 9, and then there's some, some summary statements Jesus puts to what he says in the first nine verses. But, but there's a couple things I think we need to be aware of. The first one is that, that you and I have to be careful as we go into this series, which will last four weeks, which will roll into another series that will probably last four months at least, which will be focused again on the gospel, is that there's a tendency for us to live in denial, which is to say, that's a great message, and that's a great concept, Pastor John, but that's not for me. That's for the person sitting next to me, or that's for the other person who really needs it. And the default is that that's not really me. That's normally, by the way, that's most human nature. That's our default. Is It's not me. It doesn't apply to me. It's, it's somebody else. It's true in our lives. When Just before, about six months before we moved back down here from Oregon, I, was, I started to get a rash on my back, and, and it, would, it wouldn't go away. And I just thought, sometimes I've had hives, and I thought, oh, I've got hives, and it wouldn't go away. And it started to get irritated, and before I knew it, it started to be painful. I'm like, what in the world is this? And so I'm like, okay, i got to give in, go to the doctor. So I go to go to the doctor, and our doctor comes in, and, and she looks at my back, and it takes her three seconds. She goes, oh, you have shingles. Here's the first thing that came to my mind. I'm like, old people have shingles. I'm too young. I was like early 40s, you know, and so she's like, no, you're older than you think you are. I said, it can't be. You know, she goes, this is classic case of shingles. So she had to give me medication. And I'm driving home and I'm thinking, I, this can't be. But sure enough, it was. Responded to the medication, obviously I recovered from it. But that's the default. It's like, no, 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 that's not me. It doesn't, that's other people. They, that's their problem. That, that's not my problem. And, and that, when that's the case, then we never, what happens? The quarter gets stuck. They never, we never let it penetrate our soul. The second thing, and just as a, I don't know if it's probably the proper term, but a disclaimer, please hear me. When we walk through these next four weeks and then we walk through a series which will be called The Gospel Shapes, the intent of every message that I will be preaching and a number of other people will be preaching is never to offend anybody. But one of the things I've come to the conclusion, when you read through the Gospels and you read through the Bible, guess what? In places, it is offensive. Why? Because it is offending our sin in us that needs to be dealt with. And so please, if you feel a sense of offense, please don't take it up with me. Go to the scriptures, read the Bible, and take it up with Jesus. Because trust me, he can handle your offensiveness. He can. He can handle that. Because that's something that's the, maybe the starting point of saying, okay, maybe something's not right in my life. Even though I don't like it and this doesn't feel good, Maybe there's something that God's doing in my life that I need to pay attention to. So with those understandings, if you have your Bible, let's go ahead. I'm going to start in, in verse 1 of Matthew chapter uh, 13 and read to verse 9. So this is called what we call, it's a parable. It's a story Jesus tells. It's called the parable of the sower. So it's a farmer who's planting seed or sowing seed. So it starts in verse 1. It says, that same day Jesus went out of the house and he sat beside the sea. And great crowds gathered about him so that he got into a boat and sat down. And the whole crowd stood on the beach, and he told them many things in parables, saying, A sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seeds fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured them. Other seed fell on rocky ground, where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up, and since they had no depth of soil, but, but, but the sun rose, they were scorched, and since they had no root, they withered away. Verse 7, other seeds fell among the thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. Other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears, let him hear. So this morning, what I want to do by looking at this story that Jesus talks about is talk about the signs of inoculation, the symptoms of the fact that we actually unknowingly may have been inoculated. We got enough of the gospel to make us actually immune to it. And how do we overcome those barriers? So if, if walking through this passage, 
So look at verse, what we'll do is looking at verses 18 through 23. Jesus explains what he's just shared in the story in verses 1 through 9. So there's three signs of inoculation that stand out in the passage. The first one is this. The first sign is information without transformation. So in verse 19, this is what Jesus says. He says, when anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart, and this is what was sown along the path. So Jesus is telling this story, this illustration, and to that first century crowd, they got it because they lived in farming communities. When he talked about fishing, and he talked about agriculture, they got it. So now he's talking about agriculture in a way that they all understood, and he talks about this reality. He talks about a path that when he would have started talking about a path, they knew exactly what he was talking about because most likely they could look around just from the sea that they're at and they could see to fields that would describe what Jesus was talking about. And the path looks something like this. Take a look at this picture. So amongst the fields in agriculture, and you see this even today, now mostly these, these paths are not footpaths anymore. They're more tractor or truck paths. But when you look at the perimeter of a field, what do you usually see? You see a break in the crop and you see a road or a path. And that road and that path is never used to turn the soil or to harvest anything because it's too compact. It's too packed down, much like this path. As it gets trampled, obviously in Jesus' day by feet and in our day by vehicles, it becomes almost like concrete. So when the sower or the farmer comes along, he starts spreading his seed. As soon as the seed hits that path, what does it do? It bounces and bounces and then it lands, but it never penetrates. Why? Because the path is too hard. It's too calloused. It's become almost like concrete and the, the seed can't penetrate it. And so the result is that obviously that seed represents God's work in our life, his word to us, the kingdom of God, and it's laying there on the surface. We've got the information, but it hasn't transitioned into transformation into the soil, which ultimately produces fruit. That's what's true for our lives is that we're living on the surface. And that's, that surface is of, of, because of callousness. And it comes out, and we, the thing that we talked about in our resurgence series over that, the year that we were in the book of Acts, that part of our response can be apathetic towards God, which means I'm going to do nothing. I, I know the knowledge, I have the information, but I'm going to just choose to do nothing. You know, there's a number of reasons why we respond to God that way. One of those reasons, in fact, someone came to me during worship in first service and really felt like the Lord was speaking to us, and I thought that confirms what I was talking about. And that is this, that, that sometimes we are disappointed with God. That we, we had this anticipation that God was going to do something on our behalf. He was going to heal us. He was going to bring breakthrough. He was going to do something, and we pray for it. We contend for it, and it doesn't happen. And so we become disappointed, disillusioned with God. And so what happens is our response is we become jaded and apathetic to God because we thought it doesn't work. I prayed and I asked and nothing happened. And so what's the result? The result is I choose to pull back from God because he's disappointed me. Now here's the reality of the way God works in our life. God doesn't guarantee that every time we pray we'll be healed. In eternity, guarantee. Because there will be no death or sorrow or mourning anymore. It all gets gone away. But you know the guarantee that God gives us in this life? over and over and over again through the scriptures. I will never leave you, and I will never forsake you. In life, in death, in disease, in loss, in trials, in struggles, God is always present. He never leaves us, and he never forsakes us. But what happens when we become apathetic and when we, we become callous, in a sense, when we don't let God penetrate, what, what we've done is so many times we become obedient to God with this hope. I will obey God 
in return for him doing what I'm asking him to do in my life. Anybody, everyone admit you ever did that? I did. So we, we behave in such a way like, okay, I'm going to be on my best behavior. Why? Because I want God to do something for me. But then when God doesn't do what we're asking, you know what we stop doing? We stop obeying. Because it didn't work. I didn't get God to jump through my hoop. And then when we stop obeying, that's when the callousness and the apathetic part of our life kind of settles in. And then we become inoculated to the truth. Of we can sing a song about the gospel and about how great God is and about his forgiveness, about his freedom, and feel absolutely nothing. Why? Because somewhere down the line, we stopped obeying God. Because we got confused thinking that our obedience guaranteed God's miraculous power in our life. Which, by the way, everything God does is based on his love and his grace, not our perfection. That's what happens. So what if the issue that we're dealing with and the reason we're inoculated is because we stopped obeying somewhere? Obedience is a big part of the gospel penetrating, which means I'm going to let God work in my life. I'm going to let God call the shots in my life. So anybody ever struggled with obedience before in your life? Yeah? If you haven't, you're lying, right? If you, it's true. So uh, about a year ago, uh, Kim and I made a, a substantial change in the rhythm of our life. And it had been building for a number of years. And so, um, and this is kind of normally our take in the church overall in terms of the approach of this topic. So the concept of the Sabbath which we know that God established back at the beginning of time when he created for six days and on the seventh day, what did God do? He rested. And then he established that for his people, Israel, over time through the law that they were supposed to do that. Well, what did Israel do? Obviously, they took what God did, and of course, they have to improve upon it. And they made, they made the Sabbath highly restrictive. And literally down to things like if you, know, if you had an oxen and it fell into a ditch, you couldn't get it out until the next day because that was considered work. You couldn't do any work, and so it got super restricted. So then Jesus shows up in, in the New Testament, and this is where we, a lot of times as Christians today, we're like, ah, Sabbath, that's an Old Testament principle. I don't have to do that. And people will say things like, my rest is in Jesus. His death and his resurrection gives me all the rest I need. Baloney. All right? Because what, Jesus, what God established at the beginning of time was not just a, a, a rhythm for Christianity. He established a rhythm for humanity that we've ignored. And so in my mind, I had grown up in the church. I'm like, yeah, Sabbath. Sabbath, like, well, that's like Sunday you go to church, blah, blah, blah. But, but Sabbath, I don't need rest. I can rest at night. And then, then over the, like, the last couple years, I've been reading books, and I was exposed in, my, in my, my degree program that I'm in. I'm exposed to people talking about, no, the Sabbath never went away. In fact, Jesus, Jesus actually rested, actually honored the Sabbath in the New Testament. So we, Kim and I started really thinking about this, and we'd had a day off, but a day off meant like just the day to catch up on all the things that you didn't get done on the other side of the, all the other days, right? Starting last January, we actually made a decision. Okay, God, and this is the busiest season of my life right now that I'm in in the last few years. And we said, okay, we're going to Sabbath, and we're going we're gonna to set a hard and fast rule that Fridays is a Sabbath day for us. That means I can't do any work. That means I can't do anything on the house. That means I can't run errands. That means I can't do anything. I'm just going to rest. And here was my pushback with God. I'm too busy to Sabbath. Come on. Which just think about that. Think about the arrogance. The God of the universe created everything in six days and he rested and I'm too busy to rest. So, but we made the decision. Okay, I'm gonna, we're going to set a day. Okay, I'm going to be obedient, God, to do this Sabbath thing. You know how hard it was the first month? To do nothing? See, when we do nothing, what do we feel? We feel like we, we don't have any value. I'm not producing anything. I'm not busy. We get, we get value from busyness, but we just had to sit and stay calm and not, oh yeah, not make plans. And it was really hard. But this is what's happened in the last year. 
And, I, and this is God. This is the way God does it. Kim and I would both tell you, we are far more productive in the other six days than we ever been in the, in the entirety of our life because we rest one day. So it's between me right now, it's work, school, and all the other stuff that happens on the other six days, but on, on that Friday, unless somebody dies in the church or there's a major crisis, I don't answer my phone. I don't do anything. And I rest. And I'll tell you, it has made a huge difference in my own rhythm of life and my ability to actually get things done more efficiently. There have been times when I get through stuff that I thought that's going to take me forever, and it, like that, I'm like, how did that happen? Why? I'll guarantee you I know why. Because I've been Sabbathing. And God has granted productivity the other, the other days. I share that with you because that was an obedience issue for me, that I had stopped obe obeying. But, but the more I obey, the more I realize there's a softness that God pushes into my heart and begins to change and transform me. So the first sign of inoculation is that we end up with all this information, but we never see any true change because we struggle with either being apathetic or we don't obey anymore, and so we don't see that change. Second thing, look at verses 20 and 21. Second sign of inoculation is passion without commitment. So Jesus says, for, uh, as for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy, yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. So what is this talking about? So when we think about the rocky soil, usually you and I will think about it's soil mixed with rocks. And that's not what Jesus is talking about. Because first century Palestine, where Jesus is living and walking around, there's rocks everywhere. But the rock he's, rocks he's referring to is the rocks that are actually underneath the surface of the soil. And normally, maybe a couple inches underneath, there was, there's bedrock. There's rock that's like a layer of rock. And so what Jesus is talking about is that the soil on the surface looks great. The seed hits it. In fact, the seed actually penetrates the soil and starts to grow. But the problem is, is that when the sun comes and when persecution comes and when difficult times come, what, is it, what does a plant have to do to survive? The root has to go deeper and deeper and deeper. Why? Because it has to find water. And if it hits the rock, it will never last. So take a look at this picture if you're wondering what, what it looked like. Now, this is interesting. This is not Palestine. You know where this is? This is Haiti. And it's very similar what, what happened. So the, one of the trips that we were down there when we were working on the compound there in Haiti, uh, two guys were actually digging. This is, a, this is for a latrine, for a restroom that they were going to put in. And I kid you not, it was one of the most amazing things. We as Americans, we complain about hard work in Haiti when we're there for a week. This is what Haitians do all the time. Two guys, over the whole week that we were there, dug this hole with handmade shovels. They took turns getting in the pit. And as we're working on some other stuff, all day long, every day, you just see dirt flying out of this hole, just over and over. But as you can see, if you look at the picture, you'll notice that the first area of the soil is filled with rocks. And so when these guys started this hole, they didn't start with a shovel. They started with a, a hand, like basically a handmade pickaxe, and they just started breaking up the rock. In fact, you can see some of the larger rocks are scattered around. They had to lift those out. But look below the, the, the bedrock. What do you see? Just soil. That's what Jesus is talking about. He said that the, the seed hits, but it can't get past the rock. It can't penetrate in, in, in what it needs to be. That means that you and I get excited about the potential of God bringing change in our life, but we never stick around to see what that looks like for the long run. And, and really, it comes across this way. I want Jesus to fix the problems in my life. That's many of the reasons the, the premise of us coming to Christ is in crisis. 
And Jesus just fixed my problems, and we want him to fix our problems, but you know what we struggle with? We don't want to follow him. We want him to take everything away, but we don't want to give our lives to surrender to him. We want the quick fix so that we can go back to what our lives used to be, but Jesus is not interested in the quick fix because following Jesus will cost you everything because you have to be willing to surrender. Remember, you have to die to live, and there's a price. Salvation is free, but it will cost you everything. That's the truth. It's offered free, but you literally, to experience all that God has, you have to give up everything. So those of you who know my wife, Kim, um, she's the most highly organized person you will ever meet in your life. She loves to be organized and to have everything like color coordinated and all files perfectly filed in alphabetical order like that. It's kind of like, it's therapy to her. It is. She loves, like she loves, her gifting literally is to come into any chaotic situation and bring order. That's what she loves to do it. And when people uh, get to know her or they come over to her house and they see how organized our house is or how organized her life is, all the time people say this. This is so funny when they, they see our garage, like you guys don't have any stuff. No, they're all just put in bins and well-organized, you know, things. And, and this is always what people say. Well, hey, when you're done with your organization, come over to my house because I need help. And then they pause and Kim's like, seriously, you want? They're like, yeah, I would love for you to come over and organize. Really? Really? You really? Yeah. Oh, I need so much help in my house. I have so much clutter in my garage, all these kinds of things. And she's like, okay. And then she goes over to the house and she says, okay, let's, let's talk about, about this. She starts walking around saying, okay, well, that's gone and that has to be donated, and that needs to leave, and you can't keep that that way. And then suddenly the person who's all excited about organization, they're like, oh, whoa, 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 whoa. We can't, we can't do that. Well, why not? Well, because I need that, and I need it just that way because I, have it, I know how it works, and if you move it or you change it, then she says, you don't want to be organized. Half of the time she goes over to someone's house to help, that's what it ends in. It's like, oh, they see the vision of organization, but they don't want to pay the price to get there. We see the vision of what our life could look like if we actually surrender to Jesus, but we're not willing to give it up. Why? Because it requires going beneath the soil and doing the hard work of pulling the rocks out. Pulling the rocks out, that's hard. And many of us never get to the rocks and we can't figure out why we make commitments and then we flake. We make commitments and then we flake. Why? Because we haven't done the deep work of sticking around and letting Jesus go deep into our lives. It's hard, it's painful, it's difficult but you know what it does? We'll talk about it in a minute. It actually produces the fruit that we can't produce. So it's the second sign of inoculation, passion without commitment. Then there's a third one. By the way, these don't get any easier. This one's probably the hardest one. Verse 22, it's prosperity without priorities. So Jesus says this in verse 22. He says, as for what was sown among the thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word and it proves unfruitful. So I want you just to think about this for a moment. The key in all of this, this, this passage and even in this series is the gospel is never insufficient in its ability to transform the human soul. Never. The issue is never with the gospel. The issue is with what? Right here. It's with us. So it's interesting when you get to this third kind of soil that Jesus talks about, this third sign of inoculation, the soil's good. Things are growing in it. It's just that too much is growing in it. Take a look at this picture. So what happens when soil is good is things grow in soil, right? This is actually a field full of weeds and thorns. And actually flowers and all, it's probably got a mix of, I don't know, 10 or 20 different things. And it looks beautiful. It's wonderful. Because the soil's good here. There's only one problem. 
all of what's mixed in there doesn't produce anything. There's no crop that gets yielded out of this. There's no corn. There's no, there's no broccoli. There's no vegetables. There's nothing that comes out of this except momentary beauty on the surface that fades when the rains fade. And that's what Jesus is talking about. He's talking about your life on the surface looks great. You got all the stuff because what happens is the word of God grows side by side with the thorns and the weeds. And from the surface, it looks wonderful. The problem is weeds always win. They do. They always take up more of the nutrients and more of the soil than what is actually good. And they will eventually, over time, choke out the life that's supposed to be there. And how, what is, how does Jesus describe what those weeds and those thorns are? But it's this deceitfulness of riches. It's our wealth. It's our affluence. Those are the very things. It's our stuff that actually becomes the greatest inoculation to the gospel itself. Because we try to fill our lives with stuff to make us happy. And the more we have, the better off we are. But the problem is, is it never produces anything. But what? The need for more. And this is one of the challenges that we have. We don't realize that our culture is built on something that we feed into all the time, and then we try to slap God's blessing on it. God will provide for you and give you provision financially, but he is not in the business of giving you all of your wildest dreams because your wildest dreams are actually your worst nightmares. Because we finally think if we get everything that we want, then we'll be happy. No, if you get everything that you want, you will be miserable. I'm one of them, just so you know, the most miserable people on the face of the earth right now don't live in Africa. They don't live in rural China. You know where they live? In the United States of America. And I can say that because I've traveled. The most powerful worship times, the happiest people I've seen, Uganda and Haiti. I mean, not even close. We, we sang a song to, earlier today, we sang a song called With Everything. I sang that with a thousand college students in Kampala, Uganda, who had come from the worst background. Some of them had lost both parents to AIDS, and they had nothing. They scraped enough money and borrowed and did whatever they could to get to school, singing at a church that's reaching college students. And they sing it a lot more different than we sing it. You know why? Because they literally have given everything. And so they are all about God. And they are the happiest people you will ever meet. And they don't have cars. And some of them don't even have barely a house. They have a room with three or four other people. But the joy in their heart, I would trade everything I have in a moment just to have what they have. Why? Because we think that we have more stuff. Actually, we, we don't understand that our system is built on one thing. Our economy and our system of living is built on this concept of consumerism. And consumerism produces what? Nothing. It's not supposed to produce anything. It's by design. In fact, we don't even realize this, but we're becoming savvy to it, that most everything that you purchase has obsolescence built into it, which means it's going to wear out fast and it's going to become obsolete before you want it to. Anybody have one of these? This is built to be irrelevant inside of two years. Guaranteed. In fact, Apple got caught about four years ago because they were designing software for their older phones to cause them to slow down so people would go buy another one. Oh, the new phone's going to be faster. No, it's the software that's faster. 
See, it's built into that. And so this is what, what we'll get to in a moment. But the whole point of what Jesus is illustrating is when the seed gets to good soil and the soil is not mixed with all the stuff in the world, then what happens is this, the, 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 the seed produces fruit from the soil, which when you're mixed with the thorns and the weeds and the deceitfulness of riches, guess what? You can't produce anything. And that's the life that we live, is that we keep, oh, I have to have that, I have to have that, I have to have that. Now, please hear me, don't get offended. I know we, we're a very wealthy city, we're a very wealthy country, and we have a lot of stuff that we think that we need, and honestly, it's just what we want. And this is one of the challenges that we have to think, because whether we know it or not, every single day of your life living in this country, there is a competition that goes on. And one or the other will win. Here's the competition. It's the competition between God saying to you, I am all that you need. And God says that to us. He just doesn't do it with bright and shiny advertising and great marketing. He just reminds us, I'm all that you need. And then the culture that we live in and the mindset we live in says, I have to have. I have to. That's, that's, anybody seen Amazon's latest marketing ploy? So all the commercials are the same thing but different products. Somebody's sitting there with their phone and they look over to the side and they're dreaming. And they see a vision of what their life would look like if they had the product that's on the screen right now. And they're happy and it's great and they look at themselves right now and they look at themselves at what they could be and then boom, they hit the button. And then suddenly, their life is wonderful. Why is Amazon market that way? Because it works. Because we believe it. Because Amazon's, you know what Amazon's byline is? To sell everything to everyone. And they're getting pretty darn close. Because we keep buying it. Now, is Amazon of the devil? No, please don't walk away saying that, okay? I use it all the time. But when you use it based on what? I just have to have that. I just have to have that. I just have to have that. So when there's that competition going on in your life, you have to make a decision. Am I going to really believe that Jesus is all that I need? Or am I going to buy into this fact that I have to have? Let me just tell you the story, and then we'll, we'll go on to a couple questions, and we'll conclude. So a number of years ago, I had a really good friend who, at the time when we were living up in Oregon, he was probably one of the most wealthy businessmen in our city. He was probably the most sought-after general contractor in our city because he built custom homes, and he built amazing. In fact, if you drove through Newburgh, you could see the buildings and the houses he built because they were just leaps and bounds better than anything else in the city. And so he had it all. In fact, he had purchased a 10 acres of land up on a hillside, and he had built this incredible house, probably one of the most expensive houses in all of the city. One of the coolest things he showed me is that he built it himself, and so he put heaters in the floors in the bathrooms. Now, we don't get that, but in Oregon, that's really important because it's cold. And you step out of the shower, and it's like a nice, like, 75 degrees, 80 degree floor. Wouldn't that be nice? Somebody's like, hey, can I, can I have this number, right? But he had everything until one day we sat down and, and, and in tears, he told me, he said, I'm miserable. I'm like, how can you be miserable? You're the guy. He goes, no, I'm miserable. He said, because I, yeah, I have the business, I have the house, I have all that. He said, but I'm leveraged. He goes, to get to this point, I had to, I had to basically sell my soul to work all the time, to work 60, 70, 80 hours a week, to keep up with the bills, to keep the house, to keep the business and all that stuff. And he goes, and now God is pushing in on me because he says there's something more that he wants for my life and I don't know what to do because I'm trapped. He said, I can't just leave my job. I can't just, he goes, everything will just fall down like a house of cards and he's in tears. So over the next few years, we had multiple conversations about what was going on in his life. And gradually, 
he started to make decisions to get himself freed from all of his wealth and all of his stuff. Killed him, but he sold the custom house, the 10-acre house up on the, up on the hill. Eventually, the economy turned, and so he backed away from his business, and he said, you know what, to make it simple and easier, I'm going to go work for somebody. So he actually worked for another contractor underneath somebody and said, let them have the headache of running a business. And then as a result, he got to a place where, it's a beautiful thing, they sold their house, they moved into a two-bedroom rental, and I don't think his wife was very happy about it, but I'll tell you, this guy was really happy about it. Why? Because one of the things he did is he went to Guatemala on one of our teams that we sent to Guatemala, and when he came back, he was a changed person. He said, I've never been so fulfilled and so happy in all of my life than spending that week in a remote village with people who were living in poverty. And he said, this is what God has called me to do. That took three years. Because when he had everything, he was living what we would call the American dream. He realized it had crowded out everything of meaning and purpose in his life. So I share that story. Why? Because I'm not saying that everything that has to do with wealth and everything that has to do with possessions is squeezing out the gospel. But you and I have to be pretty careful because we are as guilty as anybody in the world of letting things take over our lives. So we can't say yes to Jesus. Why? Because there's too many responsibilities we've placed on ourselves that keep us from really embracing him. Then two questions we'll conclude with. Two questions, and the first one is this. If I'm going to break free from this inoculation, the first question is this. How do, I get, how do I let the gospel drop into my soul? How do I let it actually get there? So naming kind of the three, the three different soils. So this information without transformation. How do I get to the point where I get beyond just knowing and actually doing and experiencing? I know one thing for sure. I'll tell you my own experience. You have to let the word of God saturate your soul. You have to let the spirit of God speak to you. And that requires time. That requires space. That re requires listening. One of the challenges for me, and I, I probably about five, six years ago, I went through a major shift in the way that I approached my own devotional life. So for me, I, I'm, I'm a person who likes, I'm like, like to kind of stick with the rules and go with the program. But the, I realized for me a number of years ago, I had, a, I had all these kinds of like devotional programs where you read certain amounts of scripture every day and you check the box. Anybody done that before? None, none of those things are wrong. But for me, it became highly legalistic. If I had to read five, five chapters and I only had five minutes, I, I could pray and read five chapters in five minutes. And I checked the box. And boy, I walked away and thinking, I did my job. I didn't hear one thing from God. Because it wasn't about hearing anything from God. It was just about getting the job done, right? So I scrapped it. No reading plan. And so I just said, okay, Lord, it's you, it's me, it's the Bible. What do you want to do? And so what I've been doing about the last five years is when I sit down, I just pause. I have, I have a prayer list that I kind of do organized so I kind of know who I'm praying for and what I'm praying for. But I will read through a book of the Bible and what I'll do is some days I'll just read a couple of verses and I'll stop because it'll hit me. I'm like, oh, okay, I can't go further. I just need to sit in this for a little bit. God, what are you saying to me about my life, about that verse, about that word? And then I'll just sit there. The next day I might read three chapters. Because I just keep going until something shows up. But it's been so freeing for me because there's been so many profound moments where God starts to shape things in my life. But if I would have just checked the box and got my five chapters in, I would have skimmed right past what he was saying to me. And I just sat in it and gave me more time. So I don't know what it is for you, but the, the, it's, for me, I know it's part of the Sabbathing makes you slow down to the point where you're like, okay, I can listen. 
this, the chaos of life is settled enough so I can listen to what God is saying to me so that the information he's giving me is actually starting to transform my soul. Second thing, with, when it comes to passion without commitment, what, what do you and I need to do? The same thing, slow down. Don't ask God for quick fixes. Ask God to do open heart surgery on you. Like, ooh, I don't want that. That sounds painful. It is. But it's the only way that the gospel penetrates your soul is when you say, okay, I'm going to open up. I'm going to open up to God. I'm going to open up to people I trust about what's going on in my life because I want God to rearrange everything about me. So don't be willing to just say, okay, God, just make this problem go away. No, no, God's not in the business of quick fixes. That's a genie. That's not God. And God is in the process of working deep into our souls, which sometimes can take a long time. But it's, again, it's pulling out the rocks of our soul that makes room for the roots to go deep. And then the third thing, if we're struggling with prosperity without priorities, we've come to believe that somehow God blesses us because we're an end unto ourselves. God doesn't bless you financially just because he thinks you're so great, even though he does think you're so great. We are convinced of that. That's why when somebody is wealthy, we kind of like, wow, they got something going on there. God really loves them. What does that mean? God hates poor people? That theology doesn't hold up. God blesses us both spiritually through Jesus and financially to take care of our needs. Why? To bless other people. That's why he does it. Why do you have money in a house when somebody else doesn't? Because God wants you to bless other people. That's the way it works. That's how it keeps us from becoming consumeristic and driven by possessions. Why? When we're willing to give away what God's given us. And God supplies our needs and God takes care of that. In fact, this is one of the things that Jesus reminds us of. Listen to what he says in, in Matthew 6, verse 33. He says, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And then says, then all these things, which is what? Clothing, food, shelter, all the things, the basics of the necessities of life, all the things we think we have to have. If we seek God first, he'll take care of what we need. Earlier in the passage, Jesus says in that same, in that same chapter, verse, uh, chapter 6, verse 24, he says, no one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. So the reality is this. Here's an assessment for you to take this week. Kim and I started this on Friday, asking ourselves this question. I want you to, to take some time this week, and I want you to catalog all the things that you have and that you've paid for that you wanted and now you have. And I want you to total up the amount of time it takes you to maintain that thing and how much money it costs you. And then I want you to also tally up all the things that you need, that you know are needs and that you have and obviously you purchase and how much time it takes you to maintain those things and compare the two. Because that's gonna tell you who's winning. If our wants dominate our life and dominate our time and dominate the require of maintenance and we are never able to get to the need side or the side of what God's wanting to do, guess who's winning? Money's winning over God every time. And that's what Jesus said. You can't serve two masters. You can't. And guess what? Just like weeds win, guess what? In our culture, money wins. At the end of the day, money wins. And that's why we have to balance, okay, what is a need and what is a want and catalog those things. And then one final thing is this, this question to consider. How do I know when the gospel drops? Jesus said this way in verse 23. He says, as for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields it, in a case, one case, a hundredfold, in another 60, and in another 30. What is the one determining factor of the gospel dropping into your soul? It produces fruit. It means it starts to shape your character. It starts to change your behavior. It starts to change the way you view life. 
It starts to change the way what you value. Everything changes. That's the fruit of the gospel. It produces something. It shifts your life from being about self to being about Jesus. You become more selfless than selfish. Why? Because that's a result of the gospel. It's producing fruit in your life. The things you couldn't have changed before, the addictions you couldn't overcome, all those things begin to start to shift and change. Why? Because the gospel's now got deep roots in your soul. And Jesus is changing you from the inside out. And that's why it's important that we understand if there is no fruit, then, the, then we're inoculated. We're living on the surface. We're not where God wants us to be. So I'll close with this, and then I'll pray, and I'll give some instructions regarding the barbecue and, and our fall kickoff. So in our laundry mat, in our laundry love, which we do once a month, um, it's interesting, those of you who've done laundry love, one of the things I know for me, one of the byproducts of being a laundromat is you actually get pretty proficient at washing machines and dryers. You know things you never knew you would have known. And, and, uh, and it's funny, Anthony will tell you this, Anthony Angel, who are our leaders, is that people think when you're in the laundromat that you're the owners. <laughs> so when something breaks, hey, you guys are doing free laundry, you must own the place, so hey, fix this washer or fix this dryer, right? It happens all the time. Well, one of the things you start to learn, you learn little things about like the washers and dryers and why they don't work. In fact, Anthony and I found one time that, that two of the, a couple of the washers were plugged into a, a power strip that was, was not working right and they would trip kind of a little circuit breaker in the power, and it happened every single month until we went out and spent five or 10 bucks on a power strip for the owner and fixed it. But one of the things we also did figure out, and this happens probably at least every other time in our laundromat, is that the high capacity washers in our laundromat are designed in a certain way that in order for the money to go in, the door has to be closed and latched. Otherwise, the coin literally stops right at the opening. And so what will happen is you, you put it in, you think, oh, it's jammed. Somebody put a quarter in there, or they jammed something in there. And so what is always the answer to something that's jammed? Just push harder, right? That always works. So you start pushing harder, and you're pushing harder. Like, this machine is broken. And I've heard over, and in fact, it'll happen. Because maybe I'm helping somebody with, like, the normal washers, and, and someone's at the high capacity, and someone yells, Hey, this washing machine is broken. It won't take quarters. <laughs> I've heard Anthony say it, too, and a couple of us. Hey, is the door closed and latched? And then you wait, you hear a pause, and like, oh, and then boom, start, here goes the 19 quarters that it takes the high-capacity washers. And then when you get to the 19th coin, and it clicks through, and then it drops, you know what happens? The water starts, the mechanism kicks in, it starts spinning, the soap goes in, and guess what the washer does? What it was designed to do. The same thing is true with the gospel. The gospel can't penetrate when it's just in the slot. It has to drop into the machine to do what it's supposed to do. It has to drop into the soul. So this journey of, of walking through the series Inoculated and then into the series called The Gospel Shapes is about us getting beyond this surface level of where we end up living to where God wants us to be because there is a life that God has for us that is different than the life that we're living. But we have to get beyond the inoculation. So close your eyes and I'm gonna pray. Two things I'm gonna pray for. The first thing is this. If you're here and you've never given your life to Jesus, in fact, you're trying to get your brain around this inoculated thing and what the gospel is, know this. God loves you so much that he put something in motion at the beginning of time, even before you were a thought, even into this world, knowing that you would be flawed and broken and sinful. And their only way to find a way out of that is through Jesus' death to take all your sin and brokenness on, on him and his resurrection, which shows that he has power over death, which is the ultimate demise for all humanity. And because of that, he offers you a gift to reconnect you back to the God of the universe. And when you get reconnected to the God of the universe, guess what? You become who you were created to be. 
apart from all the sin and brokenness in your life. And if that's your desire today, and I'm, I'm going to pray, I'm going to ask you just to pray. You can pray means you talk to God and you say, I'm surrendering my life. I'm choosing to follow you. I'm accepting the coin fully of the gospel that it drops into my soul so I can choose to follow Jesus. But for the rest of us, if, if you've been one who is, you have been, you followed Jesus, but you feel like, yeah, you know what? I might be showing signs or symptoms of inoculation. The only answer to inoculation with the gospel is a lethal dose. Is to allow Jesus to come and to, in a sense, let your flesh and your sinfulness die. To lay down what you think your life is supposed to be about and let Jesus begin to resurrect in you the life he originally created you to live, which can only be done if you surrender fully to him. So as I pray, would you be willing to say yes to Jesus for the first time? Would you be willing to surrender your life so that you can lose your life to find it, just like Jesus said? Lord, we thank you for today. We thank you that you're a God who loves us enough that even when we don't get the full impact of what your purpose is, you keep pursuing us. You keep working out in our life until the coin drops, until the roots grow deep, until the rocks are removed, until the path is broken up and the soil can be good, until all of the thorns and the weeds have been pulled out of our life. You never leave us. You never forsake us. And so today we ask, Lord, that you would help us to move beyond inoculation to transformation. And Lord, for those who have yet to make a commitment to follow you today, give them the courage to say yes to you, to pray to you, to ask you to come into their soul and as a result, offer all of their sin and brokenness that they can find forgiveness through the repentance and choosing to follow you. We thank you, Jesus, for what you're doing in our lives today.